Well, dear Father, we thank you for your record of faithfulness in the Old Testament. We thank you for your dealings with Abram and in raising him up uh, to be a faithful servant of you. As we look at the first priest mentioned in Scripture this morning, uh, we thank you for the great high priest which we have, Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We do praise you for his gift of salvation, that he stands between us and you and mediates on our behalf, and that we are eternally secure in his hands. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all have a seat. It's been a month since we've been together, but if you remember last time, uh, Paul skipped out on being here for the Bible reading with all of the very difficult names in chapter four, so I at least got him with one this morning. Uh, not, a, not a bad job. Good job. All right, but this morning we're looking at the priesthood of Melchizedek. And some argue in this section of Genesis 14, 17 through verse 20, uh, that somebody came in later and added it in because it doesn't contribute anything to the story and it is out of place in this record of war. But I would argue that this is very much the point of Genesis 14. The war that we see leading up to this point gets us to Abram's interactions with Melchizedek because it is very much his interaction with this first priest that prepares Abram for the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is the story uh, outline for practically the rest of scripture. Everything in God's word hinges on that covenant that he made forever with Abram, and Melchizedek prepares him for that covenant. So this is a very important section in Genesis, and keep in mind when this was being written as well. It was written to the Exodus generation of Israel by Moses after God installed the Aaronic priesthood from Aaron, a descendant of Levi. There here we see a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Well, we are moving to the last sermon in our section on preparing Abram for that covenant. We move from his protecting Lot in that battle to now observing Melchizedek. And there's three points that I want you to keep in mind as we move through this passage this morning. Number one is that Abram proves to be a successful steward under the dispensation of promise. Remember in Genesis 12, we looked at this new stewardship that God was bestowing to Abram and he gave him two commands, to separate himself from his family and his country and to separate himself to God. And once he enters into the land that God would show him to be a blessing in the land. In the last sermons, we saw that he finally separated from the last of his family members when he separated from Lot. And we saw him beginning to be a blessing by fighting on behalf of those inhabitants of the land, the land which God has given to him by divine grant. And this morning, we see him continue to be a blessing. In fact, we see Abram bless every single character that he encounters in this section this morning. And so Abram is faithful to God's commands under the dispensation of promise. So having learned to trust God concerning this land promise, Abram makes no effort to overtake the kingdoms within the land apart from God's will. Number two, Abram's success in separating himself to God is climaxed with 
his obedience to God in administering blessing once he enters the land. And finally, this event prepares Abram for God's eternal covenant. Now, since it's been a month since we've been together, we're going to do a little bit of a review. But this is helpful even if we hadn't taken three weeks off. Uh, We want to remember why Abram is getting to this point anyways. It was, uh, I believe, Dr. Walvert or perhaps Dr. Pentecost who said that chapter 15 of Genesis is the most important chapter in all of Scripture because it lays the groundwork for everything that comes after, for our redemption in Christ, for Israel's promise of a land, a land in which God is going to fulfill his purpose of a kingdom and in the seed promise through the line of David resulting in the Messiah through which he will reinstall his king over this creation. This verse or this uh, chapter that we are approaching very quickly, chapter 15, sets us up for the rest of scripture. And if we don't understand it, we don't understand scripture. We don't understand the greater picture and uh, purpose of God's word. So we start with the fall and we remember right at the beginning who God is. God is the creator, the possessor of all things. And by rights of being the creator, he owns it all. Everything that is made was made through God and was made by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They belong to him and he gets to dictate how they are orchestrated because he designed them for a specific purpose. He gets to tell us what they were designed to function like. In Genesis 1.27, we see that God also created man, and he created man in his own image, patterned after himself, sharing finitely what is infinite in God. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, and male and female, he created them. And so God, the creator of all things, once he has finished his creation, he blesses them in order to prepare them for the work that he has set aside for them to do. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, rule over all the created domains and beings. This is man's portion on this earth to rule on God's behalf, in subjection to God's will, executing God's will over the rest of the creation. Man, of course, fails to do that under Adam, and we are moving forward in the Bible narrative towards the faithful king of God's choosing, Jesus Christ. And the Genesis narrative is showing us this story of the seed line, whereas God continues with each generation to say it's going to come through this line, it's going to come through this line, we see each of those patriarchs fail to be the perfect king who executes God's will on earth. With Adam, we see that he placed him into the garden for the very purpose of cultivating it and keeping it, again, subduing the creation. And he gave him one constraint on his freedom in the garden. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This is actually the first prophecy in scripture. We often point to Genesis 3.15 as the first prophecy, the promise of a savior. 
But the first prophecy we get is that Adam is going to eat. And on the day that he does eat, he will surely die. And death in scripture always speaks of separation. We think of it as separation as well. We just don't realize that. When, the, when a person dies physically, it is their soul separating from their physical matter, from their body. When we die spiritually, it is our spirit separating itself from the source of spiritual life, who is God. On the day that Adam ate, when he disobeyed God, when he rebelled against him, when he refused to operate God's creation under God's will, but to choose instead his own will, he separated himself from the source of spiritual life and he died spiritually. And the result of that spiritual death was physical death. Because, as we are told multiple times in scripture, the spiritual is first and the physical is second. And this, we can see, occurred because man was not faithful to operate under God's revealed will. God told them what to do and how to do it. And rather than depending on his word and his interpretation of the creation that he made, we reinterpret it for ourselves. God said, don't eat it. It's not good for food. You will die. Eve looks at the tree and sees that it is good for food, that it's a delight to the eyes, something she desires, and that it is desirable to make one wise. And so she, being deceived, eats from the fruit. She gives it to her husband and you know what, nothing is said here of him looking at it and thinking, oh, this is good for food, this is delightful to my eyes, and this is desirable to make me wise. He simply rebels. He follows his wife into rebellion when it was his job to rule the world on God's behalf, under God's will. We call this a top-to-bottom reversal of God's rule over creation. This is nothing new to us. The same temptation that Eve faced in the garden is the same temptations that we face day to day. John tells us about it in 1 John 3.16. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In other words, having what God or what is against God's will, being what is against God's will, and doing what is against God's will. In all areas of our life, rebellion. This is what the world entices us with. This is not from the Father, it says, but is from the world. It has its source in Satan's cosmos system rather than in God's kingdom. In Genesis 3.15, we see that second prophecy, the prophecy of a savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who deceived Eve, the one through whom the rebellion would continue. Those who are the seed of the serpent who find their source in his power rather than in God's power. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And from this point forward, man begins to look for that promised seed. And Eve thinks she finds him. In Genesis 4.1, she says, or it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain 
And she said, I have gotten a man-child who is the Lord. She believed that she had received that promised seed, the one who would save them. And if we remember anything about the story of Cain, he was anything but a savior. And sadly, this is the result of that entire seed line. Every time we see a name, we see Adam lived for such and such a time, and then what? He died. And then in the days of Seth, he lived for 912 years. That's a long time, but he died. Enosh died. Kenan died. Mahalalel died. Jared died. Methuselah died. Lamech died. At this point, we might ask, who will save us? Death has affected every one of them. They're all slaves to this death. We see someone a little different standing out. Of course, we've skipped over Enoch, who's also different. But here in Genesis 6-6, we see things getting so bad that finally the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now remember, this is Moses recording this. There was a point at which God is dealing with the Israelites during the Exodus, where God says, I'm casting them off, and Moses, I'm going to start again with you. And Moses says, you can't do that. You have made a promise, and based on your honor, you should fulfill it to Israel. Moses recognizes that God's glory is the ultimate purpose and that nothing should stand in the way of God's glory being fulfilled. Even the unfaithfulness of Israel, even the unfaithfulness of mankind. And here we see that God is about to blot out man whom he has created because he's sorry that he has made them, but one stands out. Noah found favor. This is translated almost everywhere else as grace. This is the first time we see grace appear in scripture. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, not because he deserved it, probably because he knew he didn't deserve it. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. And who makes men righteous but God? He was blameless in his time. Noah was born with a sin nature. The only way to become blameless is through faith in God in his provision of life. And here, Noah walked with God. Noah was a faithful servant. And unlike Adam, who rebelled against God's only command, we see a litany of commands that God gives to Noah, very specific designs of how to build an ark through which he's going to save the seed line. And in each case, it says, thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah is a faithful steward, a faithful servant. And so as we get through the flood narrative, and perhaps Israel, when they're first reading this, they're thinking, was this the man? Was this supposed to be the man? Because when Noah gets off the boat, God starts over again with him. Through his faithfulness, he is saved physically because God has already saved him spiritually. 
And after his faithfulness, we see that God blesses Noah and his sons. This blessing from God is very important because it fills the need which we cannot fill ourselves. As we'll see when we get to Melchizedek, the greater always blesses the lesser because the lesser has nothing to give the greater. God blesses Noah and his sons. This is bestowing blessing for service. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God could give this command without his blessing, but his enablement to do it comes from his blessing. But there's always a but with man. The end of chapter nine, we have a second fall of man. Man, of course, at this point was not redeemed from his sin. But we see that this is not the promised Savior. This is not the promised Messiah. Because there is an episode at the end of chapter 9 that's, honestly, once again, it seems a little out of place until we understand its purpose in the narrative. Noah has not spoken since we've met him. Noah has remained silent. The very first thing we see Noah say is, Cursed be Canaan. Because Noah sinned, leading his son to sin. And we see sin still remains in mankind. Noah, though he was able to be faithful and rescue man physically by obedience to God, was not able to take care of the sin problem. The sin problem is still endemic in mankind. And we begin to realize that something needs to take away the sin. Something needs to be done about the sinfulness because it infects all of humanity. But God said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. God narrows down his seed promise through one of Noah's sons, through Shem. Let Canaan be his servant and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is going to be important as well as we move forward and meet Melchizedek. Finally, we get to the Babel incident. We see that mankind has come together after the flood in rebellion against God. Remember, God established man to rule over this earth. He made them as mediators between himself and the rest of creation. He made us special in his image so that we could rule on his behalf. But under that caveat that we are to rule based on his will and not our own and not any other will, but in his. And so here we see mankind rebelling against God's will and they are still ruling over this earth. They are still the mediators but rather than mediating God's will, they are mediating Satan's will because Satan's will is to oppose God's will. Anything that is not God's will is Satan's. Satan doesn't really care what they do, honestly, as long as it's not what God says. That is Satan's will. And so when God says, spread out, multiply and fill the earth, they say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Otherwise, God will have his will done. 
this Babel, Babylon, becomes the very center of world rebellion. God steps in to perforate humanity into nation states. He separates them. He draws borders. He confuses their language so that their communication isn't possible anymore, at least not easily. And so this central pinnacle of rebellion, we realize at the very end of this age, is the very mother, the inception of this rebellion. John calls her Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. On the back of your outline, we have a, a little outline here of God's kingdom. On the outside in the black, we have his universal kingdom. He rules over all things eternally. This is his eternal transcendent sovereignty. It cannot be threatened. No created being could ever hope to take over an eternal transcendent kingdom. For one, just by nature of being created, you have a beginning and something existed before you. For God, that is not true. To be the eternal ruler, he cannot be created. But he created a kingdom within his universal kingdom. We call this the mediatorial kingdom, where his will is mediated over his creation. And he established mankind to be its rulers. And he gave them a prescription for how to rule, and that is according to his will. We call this theocratic rule. Now, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, they don't throw off their rulership. They don't throw off their very nature through creation. Rather, they ascribe themselves to someone else's will, to Satan's will, so that as we are told in Oh, I skipped past it too fast. As we are told in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is operating under the mediatorship of sinful mankind who does not rule on God's behalf and for God's will. And so Satan has not become the new ruler of this earth in the way that mankind rules over this world. Rather, he has become the God of this world because mankind rules in subjection to Satan's will rather than to God's. And so long as mankind is sinful, that is all we can do. There is only one who will be able to rule in perfect subjection to God's will, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That is one of the very significant reasons that Jesus had to come in the flesh. Because God created this world to be ruled by mankind. And by a man, a human being, part of the creation who would rule on his behalf. And mankind simply cannot do that. But God in human flesh can. Well, in Genesis 11, 5 through 6, we see God taking care of this problem. Just as they said, come, let us do this. God says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. He says, behold, they are one people 
and they all have the same language. And remember, this is part of the image of God in us. There is no animal that has the capability of complex speech. This is not a human characteristic. This is a divine characteristic imprinted on us from God. And man used this image of God to rebel against him, to coordinate and throw off his will in rejecting his will. And so God says, it's my image. I am going to confuse it. Now, nothing which they purpose to do, see, that's their will, not his, will be impossible for them. It says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language to perforate the aspects of his divine image used to coordinate rebellion so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. And so God has sent man out. He has scattered them across the earth, but there still remains that question of who will save us. What will happen to this seed line? Man continues in rebellion, and when he gets the opportunity, he rejects God. How are we going to get to a Savior? How is God going to be vindicated in this creation? Will Satan rule forever and therefore God be a failure? Absolutely not. With Abram, we see God working his plan. He pulls out one nation who is not even from the 70 nations. He's 10 generations down the line. God pulls him out and says, I'm going to do something special with you. He calls them a peculiar people, a people directly of his making. And we are watching God make this nation from Abram. He says to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Separate yourself from the world and to me, and I will make you a great nation. Remember, this is what they wanted at the Tower of Babel. They wanted to become great. He says, I will bless you. I will enable you, and I will make your name great. And his name has been made great. We still remember him. We, we call him Father Abraham. Some say, and it's true, that he is the father of three different religions. I don't really like this way of thinking about him because the others are not his descendants by faith, but rather they have thrown off his faith in the one true God. But still, he is renowned across the world. God has fulfilled that promise that his name would be made great. And he makes us many promises as well. And as we see him fulfilling his promises to Abram, we know for certain that he is going to fulfill his promises to us. But this was not the only command that God gave Abram. He didn't just command him to separate from the world and to separate to himself. He promised that he would bless Abram. But in that, he also told him to be a blessing. This is in a command form, and it's not written well in the English. He says, and so you shall be a blessing. This is not future tense. This is a command. When you enter into that land, which I will bring you to, be a blessing in that land. He says, I will bless those who bless you. God is going to bless through Abram. 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, now we remember over the last two months or so, how Abram was growing with God. He wasn't fully matured right at the beginning. In fact, we still see him maturing through the rest of our story with him. Even once you become a spiritual father, there's still more maturity that you can reach. There's still more that you can trust God in. And we see that Abram has come to trust God about the blessing and about the land. But once we get to chapters 15, 16, 17, we see that he's still struggling to trust God about the promise of a seed. But through that, we see his faith blossom even more, even to the point where he is willing to sacrifice his only son because he so trusts in God's promises that he knows if he is faithful and sacrifices his son that God will resurrect him because God's promises cannot fail. Well, he traveled without God down through the Negev into the desert and into Egypt, and he failed to be a blessing there. He was walking outside of God's will, and God's enablement did not go with him. He was thrown out of Egypt, and when he came back, we see that something has changed in him. He defers to Lot in assigning the land. He trusts that God is going to bring in the full promise, and so it doesn't matter what Lot chooses, because God has given it to him, and it will be his and he doesn't need to take it now. Well, he and Lot look from the hill countries at Bethel, and I don't have time at this point to give you guys a full presentation of my trip to Israel, so I thought I'd throw in a few pictures. This is the hill country of Israel, standing about where Bethel is, and if you see off in the distance there, that goes into a ravine, and that ravine spills out into the northern part of the Dead Sea. This is overlooking the Jordan Valley. As you move forward, you see the Jordan Valley sprawled out below. This is about where Abram and Lot would have stood as they decided the portions of the land. Abram says, take what you will, and I'll take everything else. Well, Lot chooses to go down into the Valley of Jordan. And at first he's dwelling in the valley, and then he moves ever closer to Sodom and closer to Sodom until finally we see him living in Sodom. Afterwards, when we get to chapter 19, we'll see that not only is he in Sodom, but he's been elevated in the culture of Sodom so that he's standing at the very gate of the city as one of the elders in that city. But while he's living down there in Sodom, these kings from the east sweep through the land and they take Lot and the other inhabitants of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, Adma, and Beor or uh, Zoar, and they take them off north, heading back to Mesopotamia with their people and the wealth. And Abram goes after them. These four armies, Abram takes 318 men, plus three of his allies in Hebron, and they go after these armies. They chase them all the way up through Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel, above Shechem, where Abram entered into the land. This is an old Hittite gate, which would have been there at the time Abram entered into the land. And by nature of it being a major city in the north part, Abram would have necessarily stopped through this city. 
As you move from Dan up towards Damascus, it's beautiful hill country. And some of me wondered as I was going through it, why didn't Abram stop here? He kept going down into the hill country, into the rocks. I mean, this is like Napa Valley. But he chased them all the way up through the Golan Heights to Damascus and then over east into Hobah. This is about 140 miles he chased them with an army of 318 trained men and three local allies that are brothers. And they succeeded in overcoming these four incredibly powerful armies from the east. And now as we come back to our text and we see in Genesis 14, the return from conquering these armies, we see that God was the one who won the battle on Abram's behalf. Abram recognizes it. Melchizedek recognizes it. And most importantly, I think that the children of Israel who were receiving this letter in a book form from Moses, who are about to enter into the land where God is going to go before them in battle, would know that God is a God who fights on our behalf when we are following in his will. We well, hear in Genesis 14:17 it says then after his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava that is the king's valley Well these four kings remember they were Amraphel, Arioch, Kedarlaomer and Tidal they were from the Oh, my maps don't work again. There we go. They were from the Mesopotamian Valley, the same place where Babel had been, and all the way up through Assyria, where Nimrod's kingdoms had been. And they come against these little towns down in the south part of the Dead Sea, probably where the Dead Sea is. And finally, they return to the valley of Sheva, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now remember, the king of Sodom, whose name was Baor, died in the tar pits. This is not the same king of Sodom, but this is the new king of Sodom. Now that they have returned to the land, the king of Sodom, who took over Baor's place, meets Abram in the valley of Shava. Now where is the valley of Shava, the king's valley? 2 Samuel 18, 18, again speaks of this valley. And it's the valley in which Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's valley. Well, this pillar is still standing today. And it's right at the base of the Mount of Olives. Between the east gate of the Temple Mount and the mountain of olives in the Kidron Valley, sometimes called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jerusalem's kind of got some interesting topography. It is all hills. There are no plains. It's hills and valleys. And Jerusalem, the mountain that the city is on, is shaped kind of like a snake tooth. On the one side, you've got the Hinnom Valley or Gehenna. And on the other side, you've got the Kidron Valley. 
Valley of Gehenna ends at the Kidron Valley and the Valley of, or the Kidron Valley goes all the way down through the mountains and empties out into the Dead Sea. And so this is the very top portion of the Kidron Valley, right between where the temple will one day stand and where Christ will place his feet at the victory against the other kings from the east, the Antichrist's army at the last world war. So this is the Kidron Valley where Abram and Melchizedek met, where Sodom, or Sodom's king met them. And uh, for you ladies who enjoy flowers, the Kidron Valley is beautiful with wildflowers. Hopefully you can see those, yeah. So Sodom comes out to meet him. And also Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Now we know as well that this is the right valley because Salem is the old name for Jerusalem. In fact, Jeru or Yeru means foundation in Hebrew. And in the old Assyrian or cuneiform, Uru means city. This is the city of peace. This is the meaning of the name Jerusalem. And the king of Salem, his name is Melchizedek. And this actually isn't a name in its own right. This is a title. Mel Melchi means king of or my king is. The I at the end of Melk is either a possessive of or it means my. It can be either of those two. And Zedek is righteousness. So Melchizedek, his name is either king of righteousness or my king is righteousness. This is interpreted as for us divinely in scripture in Hebrews 7, 1 through 2. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, was first of all by translation king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. This is most certainly a title because we see a slight corruption of this title about 400 years later when Israel enters back into the land and they meet the king of Jerusalem. And his name is Adonai Zedek. Adonai means Lord rather than king. Now when he meets Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in the Kidron Valley, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Now many fanciful interpreters have said that this is the first communion service ever held in scripture, but let me assure you this has absolutely nothing to do with communion. This is not the sacraments of Christ's body and blood. That is nowhere in the context here, nowhere yet spoken of. In fact, Melchizedek meets Abram in this valley. Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, and yet there is no mention of the priest offering any sacrifice. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But here, simply what is happening is Melchizedek is meeting the physical needs of the army returning from victory. Just as when David is running from his son Absalom after Ahithophel's bad counsel to Absalom, David finds friendship in Mahananim across the Jordan. 
He meets a man named Shobi, who's the son of Nahash, who brings out beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. This is an extension of friendship, of partnership, of allyship, of support for what Abram had just gone out and done. Because, and very importantly, Melchizedek recognizes that Abram has had victory because Abram is a friend of God Most High. Melchizedek recognizes that Abram is a servant of God Most High. Because Melchizedek here is a priest of God Most High. Now this is a different name for God than we've seen yet in Genesis. We've seen Elohim, we've seen Jehovah, but here we have El Elyon. This was not a name used in pagan literature for their pantheon of gods either, though. This is a very unique name for God in this region of Jerusalem. And it does speak of the one true God. But we see from this that it does not come from the same tradition that Abram has grown up with in Ur and then in Haran and now moving into the land of Canaan. This way of addressing God has developed separately. These two have not had contact in the same people groups, and their way of addressing the Most High God is different. Daniel is going to use this term for God almost exclusively. This is Daniel's preferred term for God, the Most High God. But now when this priest of God, the king of Salem, meets Abram, he blesses him. And he says, blessed be Abram of God most high, God most high who is possessor of heaven and the earth. Abram is recognized as God's servant. Melchizedek recognizes that God who is the possessor of heaven and earth has this special relationship with Abram. And so he blesses him. And then he is going to bless God Most High. Now remember what God said to Abram when he told him to go into the land and to be a blessing. He says he will bless those who bless you and curse those uh, who curse you. Now the four kings from the east had been cursed and they were cursed in kind. They came conquering and they were conquered by Abram. But here now we have Melchizedek blessing Abram. And God is going to bless Melchizedek through Abram. Now here as well, this is interesting. Melchizedek blessed Abram because he is Abram's spiritual superior as a priest of God Most High. But Melchizedek then blesses God Most High. He is not God Most High's spiritual superior. He recognizes that it was God who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand and that God is the victor. And God blesses Melchizedek by Abram giving him a tenth of all the spoils of war. Now it just says that he gave him a tenth of all and some interpret this to mean that Abram gave him a tenth of all of his riches and wealth. That doesn't actually hold up. And again, we have a divine interpretation in the New Testament that says Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. 
to Melchizedek. Both Abram and Melchizedek recognize that God is the true victor in this battle. And Abram has no other way of giving God his portion than to give it to God's priest, to give it to God's servant. And so he does so. He gives a gift to Melchizedek. This is a grace offering and to God's priest who represents God before men, just like he represents men before God. Now in Hebrews 7, 4, again, this is a section in Hebrew where we talk a lot about Melchizedek and his priesthood. It says, Observe how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have com uh, commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abram. So this, under the law of Moses, becomes standard practice that the people give to God by giving to the priests, the priests who are in service to God. The writer of Hebrews makes sure that we recognize that Jesus is not a priest who serves under the law of Moses, but according to a different priesthood. He says, but the one whose genealogy is not traced to them, in other words, the one who is not a priest because he is from a genealogical line of priests, but rather one who is appointed as a priest directly by God. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abram and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So again, that raises the question, how is God blessed by Melchizedek if without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater? I guess I don't answer that quite yet. Let's talk a little bit about the priesthood of Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, 4 through 5, this is the only other reference to Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and it is a prophecy of the Messiah. Remember, this whole storyline of Genesis is moving towards the Savior, this Messiah. Melchizedek plays an important function in the progress of the seed line. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. You will shatter kings in the days of his wrath. Well, in Hebrews, this is picked up again. And remember, Hebrews is written to show the Hebrews after Christ's death and resurrection and right before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, that Jesus is superior to the rabbinic Judaism that they are falling back into, which is a demonstration of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah because they continue to offer sacrifices when Jesus has offered the final sacrifice. So Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now notice here this is having become a high priest. He has not always been a high priest because, as we'll see, a high priest must be human. 
in order for a priest to represent men before God, he must be a man. Melchizedek was without father, without mother, and without genealogy. Now this has thrown some people off as well, and they say, well, this must be a theophany. Christ himself coming in visible form, because here he's without mother, without father, and without genealogy. But very importantly, this is concerning his priesthood, not his existence. Melchizedek likely did have a physical father, and a physical mother, and a genealogy, perhaps he even had children. But this is not why he was a priest. He was not priest because his father was a priest. He was not priest because he was in the genealogical line of priests. It says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We remember Aber or Aaron, who's brought up to the top of Mount Hor, taken his garments away from him because his priesthood is ending because he's dying. And it's being handed on to his son. We don't see any beginning to Melchizedek's life. We don't see any end to his life. We don't see any beginning or end to his priesthood. He stands in the Old Testament as an eternal priest without beginning or end. He is made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest perpetually, just as Jesus. And then, of course, therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. This is with our flesh. He has been incarnated into humanity. This makes him able to be a high priest. Until he became the incarnate Christ, he could not represent us to God. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. For every high priest is taken from among men, appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness, flesh. This is a very important function of a priest to be a human to represent humanity and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people so also for himself the levites were sinful beings malchizedek was a sinful human being and needed to offer sacrifices on behalf of himself as well as the people but jesus christ had no need to offer sacrifices for himself he was far superior and able to offer a sacrifice once and for all for mankind. Now as well, it is important to recognize that no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God. That means that Melchizedek, standing here in this valley of Jerusalem, was appointed by God as a priest. Even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also in other passages says, you are my priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the same way that Melchizedek became a priest by the direct appointment of God, not because his father was a priest, Jesus is a priest. God chose him to represent him to man and man to him. And so Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus 
became a man when he was incarnated. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect. In other words, having died and been raised again in his new and perfect body. He became to all those who obey him, obeying him concerning his command to believe. He became the source of eternal salvation. And so he is designated by God, chosen directly by God, not because of his lineage, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're ready to ask, who is Melchizedek? The short answer, and I'm going to skip to the end, is we don't know and we can't know. But there are theories of who he may be. Now, nobody actually thinks he's an ape, but I just had to throw it in there. Because once again, a priest must be a human. He's also not an alien. Now, this one's not a joke because there actually is a theory that he is an alien. Sadly, this is the state of theology today. A priest must be a human. Is he an angel? Anybody guess what the next? A priest must be a human. Okay. It's not a Christophany or a Theophany either, because once again, a priest must be a human. This is not Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form, because by nature of him being in a pre-incarnate form at that time, he could not hold the office of a priest. Jesus was not a priest before he became a man. As well, theophases never hold any earthly office. Remember as well that God created earth to be ruled by mankind in subjection to his will. A pre-incarnate Christ cannot rule the earth on God's behalf according to God's will because this is the role of mankind. Jesus has to first become a man. And so is this a Jebusite king? The Jebusites lived in the area of Jerusalem. This was their kingdom. When the Israelites return after the Exodus, we see that the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. The problem with this, I think, is that the Jebusites are children of Canaan, the cursed line of Noah. And I do just find it a little difficult to believe. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I find it a little difficult to believe that Jesus' eternal priesthood is after the order of the cursed line of Noah. Now, I'm going to contradict that as I show you why it's very possible that I'm wrong about that. Oops. Though God did say through Noah, cursed be Canaan, we see that at the point where Abram is in the land, the sins or the iniquities of the Amorite was not yet complete. Amorite is used here as a synecdoche, meaning talking about a portion while meaning the whole, to talk about the children of Canaan in the land. They were not yet thoroughly rebellious. It is very possible, very likely, and Melchizedek may be an example of faithful Canaanites, true to the one true God.
we see again this corruption as we enter into the land after the Exodus and Melchizedek's descendant, Adonizedek, is now a bad king who opposes Israel, while his descendant may have been a good king who recognized God's working with Abram. Now as well, I can't very well say that Jesus cannot be a priest in the order of Melchizedek who is from the cursed line of Canaan simply because he's from the cursed line of Canaan. Because if we look at the genealogy of Jesus' physical birth, we also see that Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, is in his genealogy. And Ruth, the Moabitess, is also in his genealogy. And it may speak to God's grace to see that Jesus' present priesthood is modeled after a line that was cursed. Of course, it's not according to genealogy. This would make it possible that Jesus is in this same line. The other option is that uh, Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah. This is actually historically the most common interpretation, the most common suggestion. The problem is the evidence is not scriptural, it's tradition. It is tradition from the early rabbis, and just because it's tradition doesn't mean it's wrong. But of course, tradition has no basis or no uh, appeal to God's authoritative word. It may be true, it may not be true. That itself is not evidence. Shem was still alive at the time when Abram met Melchizedek. Shem may have traveled to that area of God's created world. I mean, they had 500 years after the flood here. Imagine where he could go. But the only scriptural evidence seems to be the transfer of blessing. Where Shem was blessed when Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, that Melchizedek's blessing of Abram was a transference of this blessing onto God's chosen vessel. This is the best evidence that Scripture has for this. It's pretty weak evidence, but it is interesting. Because if this were true, then God's seed line holds both the priesthood and the kingdom. And this ultimately is united in Jesus Christ, the king-priest. We see it united, of course, in Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. But the best answer we have is an unknown but historical king-priest in Salem. We only know for sure what the text tells us. He is a priest, he is a priest of the true God, and he is a king. And this looks forward to Jesus, who is a king and a priest of God Most High. Now, before we leave Melchizedek, let me say three more things about him. Melchizedek was able to bless Abram as Abram's spiritual superior, but he was also able to bless God. How is this possible? The priest of God stands between God and man, a mediator of blessing, 
Alone, man has nothing with which to bless God, who is infinitely his spiritual superior. But one blessed by God may reciprocate God's blessing back. This is a similar situation to we love God because he first loved us. We have no ability to love him from our own right. But because he has loved us, we know what love is. We've received love and we can love him back. This is the ultimate goal of love. Not that it ends in us, but that it continues on. The same is with blessing. We have nothing to offer him, but a return on his blessing. And this is exactly what Abram does. God has blessed him by giving him victory. And Abram blesses God in return by blessing his priest, giving a tenth there of the spoils of war. God's spoils. Secondly, Melchizedek, who is a priest, appears without reference to sin. Now my phrasing there should tip you off as to where I'm going with this. He does not offer a sacrifice on Abram's behalf here. He's a priest. The first time we see a priest. And when we think of priests, we think of sacrifices. We've seen sacrifices already in Genesis. We've seen Cain and Abel offer sacrifices. Noah offer sacrifices. Why is it conspicuously absent here? Well, it's because Melchizedek is a type specifically of the risen Messiah. He is a type of Christ who is both priest and will be king. He is a type of Christ at that time. He has already offered the final sacrifice and will appear again at the end of the age without reference to sin, the great high priest becoming at last king of creation. The Abrahamic covenant, which is in the next verses, in chapter 15, begin God's bringing together of the priest and the king in the Messiah through the promises given to Abram. Finally, Abram's interactions with Melchizedek precipitate the Abrahamic covenant, which will finally be fulfilled when the Messiah gains victory over the Eastern Confederated Army and returns to the same valley to establish the kingdom with Jerusalem as its center. The kingdom begins as well with a banquet. Melchizedek is our first prefigurement of the Christ. Very quickly here, let's see what the king of Sodom has to say to Abram, now that we've dealt with the king of Salem. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now this sounds abrupt and it is even more abrupt in the Hebrew. In fact, so far we've seen a lot of pleases, both between God and man and between man and man. But here it is just give, a simple demand. Now the king of Sodom is not only the subjugated party under the kings of the east, but now he is the defeated subjugate of a defeated army. He is the defeated of defeated. And Abram has conquered, and now the right of the victor belongs to him to decide what to do with the spoils of war. And this puny little king who can't win for trying comes up and demands that he gets the people and Abram will get the goods. Well, of course, he wants the people because without the people, you have no kingdom. You have no one over which to rule. 
take the goods, we can get goods back. You can't get the people back. And so he says, leave me my kingdom, but loot us. That's fine. This is subtly tricky because if Abram were to concede to this offer from the king of Sodom, he can appear to be doing a generous thing for the king of Sodom and therefore blessing the king of Sodom. But what is tricky about this is though the king of Sodom is seeking to receive more than he deserves, Abram is going to refuse all of it, every last scrap, because this is not how God is going to enrich him. And he learned his lesson in Egypt about being enriched apart from God's means. And this is the same kind of temptation that Jesus faced in his temptation. This was the third one. He says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, all of the kingdoms in this earth are going to be received by Jesus. Actually, a better way to say it is all of the kingdoms of this earth will be destroyed by Jesus and he will establish his own kingdom. But the kingdom of this creation which Satan is ruling through mediators who appeal to his will. Satan is offering, you go be my mediator. I'll give you everything God's offering you. And Jesus says, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is what God's mediators look like. This is what God's king looks like. And God is cultivating a line to bring about this Messiah. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High. Now he adds God's personal name to this title, God Most High. Yahweh, El Elyon, professor or possessor of heaven and earth. And there's some debate here in the Hebrew. This may read creator of the heavens and the earth. But the idea is that it all belongs to God and God has promised it to Abram and God will give it to Abram when it is his time. He is not going to take it from the king of Sodom because God is going to fulfill that promise. He promised to God, and this appears to be before he even went into battle, which explains to us why his 318 men were victorious over these four armies. He said that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. In other words, not one scrap of anything. For fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. God is going to get all of the glory here. When Israel is finally handed over to the children of Abram, when Jesus finally rules over this kingdom in perfect subjection to God, no one but God will get the glory. And that is what a servant of God should look for, that God gets the glory and not men. But he does say, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. These are his 318 warriors that went with him and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Ashkel, and Mamre, his allies. He does not rule over these three brothers. They are allies of his and he has no right to demand what they will take and what they will not. And so he allows them to take their share. And we see in this that Abram has blessed the king of Sodom by taking nothing. 
Not to mention, he blessed him by having rescued his kingdom from the opposing armies. He blessed his own men by allowing them their sustenance. He blessed his allies from Mamre. He blessed Melchizedek, God's priest. He blessed God through Melchizedek. He blessed all those whom he appealed to God to save. And he was blessed by God. So we can ask the question, was Abram faithful as a steward of God's rule on earth when God told him, when you go into the land, be a blessing? With that, we can say a resounding yes. Abram has been a faithful steward, and he will continue to be. We'll see him continue to grow as we move into chapters 15 and beyond. But Abram remains a very faithful servant to God. Abram is growing in his faith, and he is continuing to trust. So this morning we saw that Abram proves to be a successful steward under the dispensation of promise. Now he is ready to receive the Abrahamic covenant. Having learned to trust God concerning the land promise, Abram makes no effort to overtake the kingdoms within the land apart from God's will. Abram's success in separating himself to God is climaxed with his obedience to God in administering blessing once he enters the land, and this event prepares Abram for God's eternal covenant. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness revealed in your word. We thank you for your word, which we can trust, which we can analyze and come to know you better through it. We know that you have revealed yourself and that you have revealed your son through this, and we come to trust in him for our salvation. We know that we will uh, receive every promise, especially the promise that you've given us of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.